Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. On today's show, we'll talk to Joe Sheehan and preview the postseason for some of the teams that have already clinched a spot. And we'll talk to New York Mets radio broadcaster Wayne Randazzo to talk some NL East, some Mets, of course, and some thoughts on using analytics in radio broadcasts. Joe Sheen is appearing on the podcast for the second time, much like Tyler Kepner, who joined us last week. He was a three-timer. He sets the standard, Joe does, for baseball newsletters. We'll give the details at the end of the podcast. He's also written for Sports Illustrated, The Washington Post, Baseball America, and many other publications in his 25-year career, making his mark at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, all right, so this is national-focused baseball smart talk here, I guess. And uh, my first thing would be, with the postseason coming up, I wanted to look at, like, the locks, because there are going to be teams that we're going to talk about where three, four days from now, when people are listening to this, they're not going to know, we're not going to know whether or not those teams were in the play- playoffs or not. So we talked locks. And I feel like with all the locks, if they were to win the World Series, I can predict who the stars of the run are going to be. Like if the Yankees won, you know who's going to be the big stars of that. If the Dodgers win, you know who the big stars are going to be. If the Padres win, you know who the star- stars are going to be. But I can't do that with two teams and two teams that have among the best records in baseball, Oakland and Tampa Bay. So I ask you to tell us the story. Who will star if the A's or Rays win the World Series? I think for the, you know, that's the story of these teams, right? They eschew the $20 million players. They build from within. They, they pick up the, the low-key free agents. The, the Rays have been excellent at developing their own talent. So you know, that's, they're very similar in that regard. The fact, they played in the wildcard game last year. I think if the Rays were to go all the way, it would look a bit like, and maybe the 2011 Cardinals is a little dismissive. Maybe the 2014-15 Worlds are the best example where they get a lead in the sixth inning. You know, when you look at the back of the, from the back of that bullpen forward, Nick Anderson struck out, you know, almost half the batters he's faced. Power arm. He could be like this year's Wade Davis or Koji Iwara where he just doesn't allow any runs in October. And that's an incredibly valuable thing to have. And then in front of that, they just had this endless array of power arms that do different things, come from both sides. You know, Diego Castillo has actually been very good. He was dominant for them two years ago. Um, he's back. He's, he's very good for them. I, just, I feel like if they make the run, it's going to be because the bullpen just shuts teams down. And you know, even going back further, you think about the 2010 Giants. You know, Brian Wilson, Sergio Romo, uh, Jeremy Affelt. That, that's the model for the Rays, the bullpen. To me, the, the A's are you know, losing Chapman is a big blow for them. I mean, their thing is we're going to play great defense, we're going to hit home runs, and Chapman was the kind of the epitome of that, along with Matt Olson. So, uh, I think it'll be harder for them. I think they'll probably have to rely more on that rotation. I look at Jesus Luzardo, who at his best has been a number one caliber starter this year. The overall numbers aren't that great, but at his peak, has been fantastic. Comes from the left side. Working deeper into games, Marky's got a 25 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio in September, so he's really starting to come into his own. Remember, this is a guy who was supposed to be in the rotation last year. He had the shoulder problem at the start of 2019, only ended up pitching out of the bullpen for them. So if the A's were to advance, I think it's going to be on you know, getting that, that pitching staff down to just a few guys, um, using Hendricks heavily out of the bullpen, um, riding Luzardo, getting some innings out of him. Maybe it's a Mike Fires or a Sean Manea in the two spot, but I, I think it's going to really be a story of pitching as well. Now, when you say that, it made me think when you brought up the Giants comparison, you're basically asking those teams to find a Marco Scudero or a Cody Ross, right? 
there's no question offensively because they don't have a ton of offensive stars between them. I mean, especially, you know, the Rays, you came into this year, thought, hey, they're finally going to have that really good offense. Well, you know, Austin Meadows, you know, he, he contracted the coronavirus. He's kind of had a lost year. Yandy Diaz, when he plays, is a very good hitter. He just hasn't really you know, been healthy. Um, you look at the, you know, Brandon Lau's been good. Nate Lau's starting to come, uh, Nate Lowe, I should say, is starting to come around. But it's not the offense kind of thought they would have. So, you know, do you, does, is it a Willie Adams? I love Willie Adams. I've had him in a score sheet league now since he was a Tigers prospect, I think. But, you know, he hasn't really hit a lot the last month or so. Plus defensive shortstop, good pop, you know, he's tw- what, 21, 22 extra base hits so far this year. Um, could he be the guy who gets hot for a month? Could it be Manuel Margot, who's another player who I was on when he was a Red Sox prospect and you know, a good player? But think about guys who could be Billy Hatcher. You think back to the 1990 Reds run. You know, who are the types of hitters that could go out and just have a great bat to ball month? Hit 350, even though we know they're not 350 hitters. I think Adamas and Marco are two guys like that. And and then for the A's, you know, I think it's a little harder to find. You know, they're just their offense is very much a take and rake, you know, three true outcomes kind of offense. I mean, we saw what Marcus Semien can do. Last year, he was an MVP candidate. He hasn't really hit this year. Uh, Matt Olson's having this weird Rob Deere, Dave Kingman type season. <laughs> Somebody's got to break out, whether it's Loriano, Stephen Piscotti, one of these average, average plus hitters is going to have to go nuts for a bit. Because you know, if the A's get knocked out quickly, I think it's going to be because they score five runs in three games. The uh, Tampa Bay Rays and Oakland A's among the two best records in the majors this year are right there with them, the, sh- the Chicago White Sox. The uh, White Sox have been pretty, pretty good from start to finish. The Cubs, too, and the Cubs are completely different in a NL Central that is an offense's uh, worst nightmare, basically. Uh, what are your impressions of the two Chicago teams heading into their respective postseasons? I think it's fascinating to look at the Cubs because – you know, it wouldn't surprise me to you know, have the 32 and 23, they're running away with the NL Central. They're going to be the two seed in the National League or the three seed. But if you told me that they're going to do that with the core of that championship team from a couple of years ago, Rizzo, Contreras, Bryant, Bryant, excuse me, Baez, Bryant, and Schwarber, basically doing nothing. Only one of those hitters has been an above average hitter this year. It's remarkable to me how little they've gotten out of that core and still been successful. Now, whether you want to credit David Ross, you want to look at some of the, the secondary moves they made this winter that have helped out, Jason Kipnis, Jeremy Jeffress. They, they hit on a lot of those guys this winter. But for those five guys to be not playing well and for this team to be playing as well as it is, it's like they're 32 and 23 and underachieving. Um, so I think that's really the story there. You uh, will see you know, Chris Bryant has driven in three teammates this year. Three. That that's three more than you have, Mark. <laughs> that's gross. So it's gross. It, it's it's really a fascinating year. So um, that's also and that kind of look and say, okay, well the talent's still there, right? I mean, these guys are still the hitters that they've been. Could they go into October and just go ham on the league? Like I think the Cubs are a lot more dangerous going into the playoffs than maybe we're getting given credit for because we're focused on the Dodgers, we're focused on the Padres. I think the Reds are starting to get a lot of heat, and the Cubs have just kind of been there all season so um across town or should say uh, uh, downtown the white Sox. it, it would be interesting it would have been interesting if they could have held this up all year like this was the this was the year they had been they'd been aiming for but when i look at that offense man it's all that bat to ball yes they strike out yes they have guys that don't draw walks but when you look at tim anderson luis robert eloy jimenez even jose abreu you know, he was 33 years old and doing this like when they hit the ball it stays hit they just absolutely square the ball up and they get a ton out of their contact. So typically you'll say, you know, we want teams to make contact. We want teams to draw walks. 
And they don't do that. And they're leading the league in average. They're leading the league in slugging because when they just hit the ball so hard. They're an incredibly fun team to watch. And it doesn't hurt that, like, you know, Luis Robert, in addition to – and the numbers have slipped a bit in September, but he's a plus defensive center fielder. Like, he's a complete player. I don't want to call him the AL Statiste. That's obviously an exaggeration. But when you talk about a young superstar, exciting to watch, plays a key position up the middle, still has stuff to learn, but on his best day, he's one of the most watchable players in baseball, that's Robert. Young superstar, exciting to watch. Uh, different position. I moved to the mound. Uh, Denelson Lamette, uh, to me, is the pitcher that might become the household name this postseason. You mentioned Lazardo in the American League. I bring up Lamette in the National League. I don't know what your take is on the Padres. I don't know if you wanted to talk about him or if you wanted to talk about something else with San Diego. But here's the thing. I know that Tatis is great, but here's the thing that's impressed me the most about the Padres this year. I think Jace Tingler stepping in and developing some of that talent. You know, the, the pitching is obviously, I think by now we all expect a uh, McKenzie Gore to be up. And they've done all this without even tapping Gore to, to pitch at all. Um, you know, they've used Andre, Adrian Morahan. They've traded for Mike Clevenger. It's the depth on this staff, even with like a paddock not having a big year without Richards really stepping up. I look at that bullpen with, you know, Pomerantz, who hasn't given up a run this year. Um, you look at Pagan, who hasn't been great, but is a power arm. You look at Matt Strom, who's a, a lefty who gets righties out. I, I absolutely love him. Um, trading for Rosenthal. That depth in the pitching staff, you know, Mark, you saw the other day, they published a postseason schedule with no off days. So it, it seems to me just, you know, looking at it from here, that's going to favor depth in a way that the postseason hasn't in a number of years. So you've got a team like the Padres that has that goes 9-10 deep with, you know, Lamette and I don't know if Zach Davies is really a playoff starter for me, but he's certainly been effective for them this year. You start with uh, Lamette and Clevenger, and then you can take those guys out in the sixth and just throw these power arms at them. Even Richards could, Richards could be working out of the bullpen. And I think Richards in a two to three inning role could be absolutely amazing. So, you know, the Tingler's done a great job. They've got the depth. And of course, you know, we've been talking about Tatis all year. You know, the, I mean, the Padres are exciting. Talk about pitchers, though. We mentioned Lamette. We mentioned Lozardo. I want to throw out two other names. Ian Anderson with the Braves. Mm-hmm. is probably going to start the, the second game for them, especially now with Hamels out. And Davey Garcia with the Yankees. You'll see if they end up with using Hap. Paxton's out for the year. Uh, he could step into a playoff role and be interesting as well. So you know, we could see starters, because of the compressed schedule, teams are probably going to have to use four theoretically, maybe even five starters once you get to the league championship series. Um, we're going to see teams tapping depth in a way they haven't in a while. So some of those young arms could really come into play. Yeah, the Davey Garcia Major League debut in particular made you think, or made me think at least, that he could be a useful uh, pitcher for them uh, at the end of the season. All right, staying with the Yankees and uh, and Dodgers too, uh, we know that a casual fan is going to look at those teams as the favorite. So uh, uh, kind of flipping the script on that, when the Yankees and Dodgers lose this postseason, what will the reason be? I think for the Yankees, it'll be they just don't hit the ball out of the park for a few days. Um, it's a true t- three-true outcomes offense. Um, they're 11th in doubles in the AL. They're fifth in batting average, but a lot of that is hitting the home runs. Third in walks, first in homers. The league is scoring 44% of their runs on home runs. The Yankees are over 50%, one of the highest totals in baseball history. So if they just have one of those days where the fly balls don't leave the yard, the offense does struggle a bit. When they don't hit a homer, they're one in 10, and they've averaged less than three runs a game. And, and again, it's a short, so we're talking about best of threes here. We're talking about best of fives. It's trivially easy for a team to just not hit homers for a couple of days. So if the Yankees were to go out quickly, I guarantee you that would be the reason they just didn't hit home runs. I think the Dodgers are a little more complicated because they're just, they do so many things. I worry about their bullpen. 
you know, Kenley Jansen, we know, isn't the guy from a couple of years ago. But in front of him, you know, Blake Trinan was dominant two years ago. He's okay. You look at Dylan Floro. You look at Jake McGee. Um, Caleb Ferguson's out for the year. That hurts them a lot. He's been great for them out of the pen. Have I named anybody yet that <laughs> makes you go, ooh, I don't want to see that guy? They don't have that guy anymore. And I think if the Dodgers were to lose, and this has been – to a certain extent, the Bailowick the last three years, they're going to blow some games late in a short series, and you can't do that. Um, you think about, you know, I started this conversation talking about some of these great bullpens, right? And if you look at the great playoff bullpens, it's not six, seven, eight guys typically. It's Rivera Wetland. It's the Nasty Boys. It's HDH with the Royals. It's, it's guys who just don't give up anything in the seventh, eighth, and ninth. And I just don't trust the Dodgers to have that this year. You mentioned the Dodgers that kind of segues slightly to the Braves, where I say that typically in the eighth and ninth for them with Green and Melanson and whatever other combination they use, there's no intimidation factor there. There are a lot of things to talk about with the Braves, that uh, that I think being a, a kind of a, a question. Uh, the fact that they've used like 57 starting pitchers in uh, 50 games would be another. Uh, Freddie Freeman's MVP caliber year would certainly be another uh, and Marcelo Zuna's uh, bounce to a, a major star uh, after signing with the Braves this past offseason. What are your thoughts on Atlanta? I think they're an incredibly fun team to watch. I mean, Acuna is almost overlooked now because there's all, all these other young stars that we focus on. And Freeman's been this guy for you know, the better part of a decade. He's having one of his best years. I made the point the other day, you know, it's, it's almost like 94 or 81 where if you have your best year this year, it's going to get lost in the shuffle a little bit because in your you know, baseball card, your reference page, whatever, it's going to be a 15 homer, 60 RBI, you know, here. And we're not going to remember it as, hey, he was one of the best hitters in the league that year. And when you look at Freeman having a Hall of Fame case, losing 60% of the 2020 season actually could really end up hurting that case. But as far as the chances this year, you know, I love the top of the lineup. You know, I think Ozzy Albies is really coming along. He, he wasn't hitting for a while. You mentioned the pitching, though. They haven't committed to like one or two guys. They've established Max Freed, but you look at, you know, Toussaint, you look at Bryce Wilson, Ian Anderson, Kyle Wright, and they traded Colby Allard. It feels like they've had so much young pitching that's actually hurt them and that they've never said, you're our guy for 30 starts or in this year, 12 starts. (laughs) I mentioned Anderson probably starting the the second game of the playoffs for them. You know, he's in, is, I apologize, I'm going to screw up this name. Wasker, you know, Inwa going to start the third, Uh, you know, Josh Tomlin, maybe it's, it's such a thin, and granted, they, they lost Soroka. And that's not their fault, obviously. You know, Newcomb, they, they were going to start him this year. He, he, he was a disaster after pitching him out of the bullpen a bit last year. So they're not going to get innings out of the rotation. And as you mentioned, there's not a lot of reliever depth here. I just feel like, especially again with the compressed schedule, they're going to get to a point where you're just going to run out of good pitchers and you're going to end up with, I mean, I know Matzek has been good. Maybe that's not the best example. But you're going to end up yep. like Shane Green having to face three lefties in a big spot and it's going to be over. Yep. And then I guess the last of the, the sure thing in the playoff teams, at least at the time that we tape, is Minnesota. I, I guess the, the simple question is, would just be, can they, can they finally somehow get over a, a first round hump this year? I don't want to, I don't put you on the spot by asking you this. Yep. My feeling is that when Buxton's on the field, they're an incredible defensive team. Do you do, do, do the sports info solutions numbers back that up? Well, or, just the fact that he's, he's way better than anybody else that they right. have and putting him out there is going to make them, I would think naturally better in both uh, corners too. I would think just because Rosario and Kepler have less ground to cover Rosario can just throw guys out and you know, whoever they put in the other outfield spot, can, can just catch the ball. Kepler uh, certainly being uh, the key guy there. He was good. He had good numbers with uh, Buxton last year. 
So, uh, yeah, and Buxton's also started to hit, too, which I, I think is, is a big plus for them, kind of hit like, like I think we've expected him to hit for, like, five years. Right. No, we, we've never thought of him as an OBP guy, but if he hits yep. 260 with, a, I mean, granted, two walks is a little low, but the power's going to be there, the speed's going to be there, and the defense going to be He's a five-win player, you know, right now. Yep. And it's just a matter of can he ever stay on the field long enough to get to five wins. I, I, I ask because, you know, they strike out more guys than they used to. But it's still not, you know, a high strikeout rotation, especially you get past Maeda and Berrios and you've got, you know, is it going to be Rich Hill? Is it going to be you know, Michael Pineda? Is it going to be Randy Dobnak getting those starts? You know, Jake Odorizzi has been on and off the DL. I think he's projected to start for them in the playoffs, but they need that defense to be strong to back up a staff that, you know, isn't, isn't going, isn't a high, super high strikeout staff. And then also, you know, an offense that, is regressed sharply from last year. They're on pace for 250 home runs, but it's not the offense it was a year ago. Or I should say they would have been on pace for 250 home right. runs. So that, that's crazy to say, to say something yeah, yeah. like that, but it's true. That's baseball 2020, right? All right, I guess last, last thing about specifics to the season. What did you think? I, I, don't, uh, I don't know that I prepped you for this in advance, but what did you think of the, the rule changes for this year and, and how you feel those have panned out? I didn't like any of them. Well, the, I should say that I, I keep forgetting the DH is just for this year. Cause I think the DH is going to stick around. Yep. I've been pro DH for about a decade after a long time of not liking it because pitchers are just so dominated now at the plate that you can't keep running them out there. It's like asking an offensive lineman to kick or a kicker to play offensive line. The specialization of pitching, you know, goes back to when they put the mound at 60 feet, six inches. Um, and I think it's good that we're finally recognizing the pitchers are overmatched at the plate. So that I enjoy. I, three batter rule, Mark, I have to tell you, I don't think I've noticed it. Mm-hmm. I just, I guess the absence of the one bad, the batter by batter changes, but I just, it's something that doesn't even cross my mind as I'm watching games for the most part. I guess occasionally the Dodgers have used Adam Kalark and I've been like, oh, how's that going right. to work out? I think where you notice it is when the batter's about to come up and you say, okay, are you going to bring in this right. guy for this guy? And then you say, oh, he's got to face the next two, too. I think that's, I think once you kind of, the game, you don't necessarily notice that. You'd kind of remember it on the fly. Right. Um, I hate the extra inning rule. I hate the seven inning double headers. If they had said in, in July, all games are going to be seven innings this year, that I could have got on board with. But it's making, you know, in the middle of a weekend of the season, deciding the double headers were going to be seven games. Well, okay, now you've got the Cardinals playing 24 seven inning games, and some teams are going to play two. I don't really think that's necessarily fair. And again, a lot of it is just getting through the 2020 season, but that really bugs me. It also bugs me that I don't know half the time. I was watching the Brady Singer, Singer no hit bid uh, a couple weeks back against the Indians. And he gets the final out of the seventh, and I can't figure out why nobody's celebrating. <laughs> I thought it was a seven-inning game. Because I think they started it at six, because the Indians uh-huh. start their home game. So I completely forgot I was actually watching a seven-inning game. And then you see extra-inning games end in eight, like the Nationals and Phillies did. Yes. I was like, okay, now I'm just really confused. <laughs> so yes. I hope that goes away. I'm, I, am, I, I think I am with you on that. I, am, I think I am all right with the runner on second to start uh, the extra inning. Because uh, now I understand... I, I, I borrow from the idea of the hockey shootout, which I like and which I think brings excitement and kind of forces uh, forces a resolution. I think with baseball that you could have made a case that they should play a 10th inning and play the 10th inning as you normally would and then see where you are at the end of 10. And if you have to go to the runner on second at that point, that's where you do it. Uh, you, get, you essentially gave each team a chance to win normally in an extra inning. And then you go to something a little abnormal. It's still... I realize that it's modified baseball, but it's still something at least close to it. We can agree to disagree. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't mind the long games. I know the players don't like the right. long games. 
Yep. All right. So I talked about your newsletter right at the start. I want to give you a chance to plug that. Uh, two newsletter topics that I've liked of late, of course, because we're a defense company. You just did a piece on your favorite baseball play. And, uh, given that we do a lot of defense talk, it's great for this podcast. I'm going to tell you mine. I actually looked it up before we talked. I believe it's September 2nd, 1996. Lance Johnson taking a home run away from Tim Wallach. And the reason that that's my favorite play is because I was sitting in the upper deck at Shea Stadium with a tape recorder in my hand. And as the ball was hit, my first thought was, I think Lance Johnson is going to go over the fence and catch this ball. <laughs> and it played out exactly how I expected it. I did the call. I did not go bananas. I had my tape recorder to try and do mock play-by-play. I wanted to be a play-by-play mm-hmm. broadcaster. I did not go bananas. And it was very much... The jump was in sync with the, he leaps and he takes a home run away from Tim Wallach. And that's phenomenal. And so that was really cool. And flash forward 20 years later, uh, Ender Inciarte took away a home run from Cespedes to win a game in the ninth inning at City Field. And I'm watching the game on TV and Gary Cohen called the play the same way that I called it in <laughs> 1996 where I could tell that Gary knew as soon as the ball was hit that Ender and CRT was going to go to the fence, jump at the fence, and take the ball away. So that's, Don't you that's, love that? That's a, yes, just, totally. Yeah. And, and you, I know you talked, and I'm going to get to yours in a second, you talked about the idea of why you liked a particular play. I like the home run robbery because of that, because it's such a magical thing when you see it. And every so often you can just tell if you've watched baseball a long time, when the ball goes off the bat, you can say, I think our guy's got a chance at this one. And, and sometimes it, it pans out like it did there for in for me and it did there for Gary Cohen. So that's mine. I want to hear about yours. That's the best thing a player, a defensive player can do. He turns a home run into an out. Yep. That's the biggest thing a guy can do. So no, I can make a list just of those, I think. The best one I ever saw in person was uh, Ioannis Espedes a couple of years ago in Anaheim. I was at the game, and he threw out uh, Harry Kendrick at the plate on a basically took a crow hop and threw the ball for like 350 yards down the left field, 350 feet down the left field line. And I just had a great view of it, and all of a sudden the ball just kind of appears over Kendrick's head, and he's out by a, at least a <laughs> step. So, um, But the, my favorite play ever was one I was watching, watching, watching live on television uh, about seven years ago. Uh, it was an extra inning game between the uh, Braves and the Nationals. And 7-7 in the 14th, first and second, one out. Craig Stamen, who has to bat in the situation, at, squares to bunt, pulls back. So Andrelton Simmons is going towards third base, running the wheel play. He sees Stamen pull the bat back. And, hit, and Stammen bounces a ground ball to where Simmons had been. Simmons collects his feet and starts going directly the other way towards second, grabs the ball, touches second, throws Stammen at a first base for the double play. Physically, it's a great play. But it's that moment of I'm going hard in the other direction, the dead stop, and then coming back and making the play. I probably pull up this play a couple times a year just because it's literally the favorite thing I've ever, my favorite thing I've ever seen a defensive player do. Simmons is one of my favorite players ever for plays like this. And then you throw in the fact that it was you know, 7-7 in the 14th inning. I mean, it was <laughs> at the time, you know, it was one of the good Braves years. I forget if the Nationals were good that year. So, but it was probably a pretty important game if I look back, look it up. But it combined like the knowledge of the game with the physical ability, the grace, and then, you know, even off balance, Simmons was able to make a strong throw. You know, his arm has always been such a big part of his defensive repertoire. So, no, I, I talk about this play way too much. And that play paralleled a uh, play that Dinsby Swanson made uh, the other right. day. 
Yeah, it was the the where he he tagged the guy out at third, essentially running with him to third mm-hmm. base to to make the play. I know you and I have talked about this, and I uh, this is my hobby horse. I want more of that type of stuff in baseball, which is one of the reasons yep. you know contact rates and all that are such a big deal to me. Because to me, when I watch a baseball game, that's what I want to see: you know, running and tagging and base running and defense and throws. So I get excited about a play like Swanson's the other night in a way that I probably don't get as excited about somebody's you know Devin Williams having you know the best changeup we've ever seen. And one other thing from the newsletter that I wanted to bring up: you you did a newsletter about. So kind of the teams that we didn't talk about here are the teams that the the one week left uh, for all these teams that are fighting to try and get in. And you had a great line about the Giants. You had a stat to go with it. Uh, eight players with 100 plate appearances and above and and, uh, and and above average OPS. Only team to do that. But you had a line, I'll let you say it, about how the Giants kind of put their team together uh, that I thought was particularly funny, but it, it makes a larger point about the accomplishment of what Farhan Zaidi and Gabe Kapler did this season. So go ahead. The Giants are here because they've assembled a random collection of career years and comeback years, which could be luck or it could be something Farhan Zaidi and Gabe Kapler have done with purpose. I doubt 60 games will answer that question. Donovan Solano, Darren Ruff, Wilmer Flores. The Giants baseball reference page reads like the waiver wire in last year's NL only fantasy leagues. But I think what that really speaks to is the system is that the Giants, I think, aspire to kind of eventually be the raise with money. But for now, what they're trying to do is they're just trying to piece it together with good left-handed hitters and good right-handed hitters and pieces. And they've made it work to the point where they're, they're in the race with a couple of days left, which, which before the season started seems extremely far-fetched. So I was just curious for your take on the Giants to close this out. Well, it reminds me a little bit of the, the was it the 10 or the 12 team, whatever the Aubrey Huff team was, where the pitching was built. Winscombe, Matt, uh, Bumgarner, Matt Cain. But the offense just kind of was a collection of you know guys, you know, Buster Posey and stuff, but they got random good years. Was it Huff? Didn't they trade for Pence around that time? I'm, I'm going to forget some of the names. You know, I guess Pablo Sandoval was developed. He had his first good year, but it felt like they had a thing for a while there, even after Dusty Baker, and this has always been Baker's thing, where you know, Brian Sabian just hit on a bunch of dart throws, uh, and, and a bunch of a lot of waiver bait guys turned into stars for those 10 and 12 teams. Um, and that's the, what we're seeing here. It's, it's essentially, you know, here are the street free agents that we're going to pick up, and it so happens that three or four of them, you know, Flores has some of this in his background. Ruff was a prospect. Solano, this is kind of random, you know, and I don't know if you believe in Mike Stremsky or not. The other interesting thing here is that I'm talking about the waiver bait, but like Brandon Crawford, Brandon Belt, Evan Longoria are all having their best years in a, in a while. So the, the holdover is that, you know, a year ago we're saying, hey, Zaidi's got to trade these guys, might end up playing in the playoffs this year. I look at it as that they have taken a puzzle, the 60-game baseball season, and said, here's we're going, how we're going to place all these jigsaw pieces together. And our jigsaw may look kind of ugly at the end, mm-hmm. uh, but in the end, we're going to get either almost or two we were, where we want to get to. And it's been, uh, it's been pretty amazing because they were basically left for dead at like 8 and 16 or whatever it is that they were. It'd be uh, a great story if they get there. Yep. All right. Uh, Joe, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, give, give a plug for your uh, baseball newsletter. Yeah, I've been writing the newsletter now for a little over 10 years since leaving Prospectus. Uh, you know, I write about baseball. It's a stat head you know, viewpoint, but I'm certainly not the analyst. It's somebody like Mark is. I, I'm a writer, and I enjoy writing about the game, and I hope that comes through with the newsletter. So you can check it out, joshian.com. There are excerpts from different stuff that I've written you know, every day, most days. And then uh, you get pricing information. There's an email link there. So if you click that, send me an email. Uh, let me know you heard about the newsletter through the podcast. I'll send you a couple of copies. You can take a look. Um, this is a great time to sign up, too. We've got the, these 
the, the October madness for the first time in baseball history. So whatever you think we think about the rules changes this season, next week with these best of threes should be a lot of fun. Uh, our owner, uh, John Dewan, big fan of the Joe Sheen Baseball Newsletter. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Okay, so I know Joe and I left out the Indians. That was my fault. I'll give you one thought on them. If the Indians are going to be good this October, a star for them will be their up-the-middle defense. Their catcher, Roberto Perez, is outstanding. Their backup, Austin Hedges, also Sandy Leone, they have great defensive catchers up and down their lineup. They just can't hit. They have to find a way to hit. Perez has done that in the postseason previously. Uh, Cesar Hernandez much improved at second base in terms of their up-the-middle defense, and we know that Francisco Lindor is good, verging on great uh, most of the time. And in center field, Oscar Mercado and Delano DeShields both have very good defensive histories. So I would say that if the Indians are going to go far in the postseason, their defense is going to be something that carries them. SISBets.com is back for 2020, and if you didn't make use of it last year, you missed out on easy money. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. With it, you can leverage the power of our proven projections models to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing whether your favorite wide receiver is likely to score a touchdown this week or whether a quarterback that you have your eye on is likely to go over or under his completions prop. Just choose the bet type, the player, and the money line to see the SIS Bets recommendation. SISBets.com is available for just $9.99 per month, so it easily pays for itself, and that price covers both football and baseball. That means you can also take advantage of our most popular bet type, home run projections, which our users rode to a very solid 12% ROI in 2019. Sign up at SISBets.com. Wayner Endoza has been a broadcaster for the Mets since 2015 and a full-time partner of Howie Rose in the team's radio booth the last two seasons. You've also heard him on the Big Ten Network and ESPNU. I sent out a tweet last week about broadcasters who I would describe as statistically friendly, and Wayne was on the list with Dan Dickerson in Detroit, Joe Davis in Los Angeles. Those guys go with some guys that you probably know, like Jason Benetti and Len Casper in Chicago and John Shambi with ESPN, but I wanted to salute Wayne for that. Uh, Wayne, thanks for joining us. First of all, you broadcast the Mets, so we got to start with a Met question. What's the most impressive thing you've seen from the Mets this season? Well, I, I guess the most impressive thing is just the guy that we see every fifth day pitch as well as anybody in baseball and, and maybe as well as anybody all time has over the last three years. I mean, to watch Jacob deGrom is uh, to perform his art every fifth day for the last three seasons, really his entire career. I wasn't there for his rookie year, but I've seen most of his career uh, starting in 2015. And, you know, he's, he's just a delight to watch the way that he's improved, the way that he's perfected the art of pitching, and to see him, uh, you know, do what he's done the last two and now into this year as well. It's, it's a joy to watch, and I, I feel lucky that I'm, I'm able to see him pitch and, and do what he does as often as I am. And, and, you know, he never really disappoints, even on the days when he doesn't have his best stuff. You know, he's still able to get through it. He's still able to put up his numbers. I mean, there are a lot of times where you say, you know, Jacob might not quite have it tonight, but then, you know, he goes six innings, strikes out eight, and gives up one or two runs. So, you know, he's a special guy to watch, and, and I'm glad to get the opportunity. I mentioned the statistical friendliness that you bring to broadcast, and you had a couple of stats that you brought up with regards to DeGrom. Trevor Bauer chose to respond to one of them. <laughs> What's your take statistically on the NL Cy Young race? Because I think that's a, that's a pretty good one to talk about this year. Yeah, it's complicated. You know, I mean, there's never, you know, in a 162-game season, 
there's never five guys who can who can legitimately win it at the end of the year. You know, it comes down to one or two or three. Or you know, really in Degrom's case, the last couple of years, he was pretty much the clear cut winner for that award. There wasn't much debate. You know, occasionally we saw in the American League a few years ago when Porcello won. You know, he just narrowly beat Verlander. You know, those two guys are different pitchers, and 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 Rick got him, uh, even though he didn't have as many first place votes as Verlander did. We'll see that occasionally, but this year. You could say it's at least five people that are deserving of contention. DeGrom is one of them. Trevor Bauer is one of them. Hugh Darvish, Corbin Burns, and Denelson Lamette. And you could even say Kershaw and Max Fried, too. So that's seven guys you could really make an argument for. It's unusual. But on top of that, what's more unusual is that there's no opportunity to face the rest of the league. You're only facing your own division within the league. So, you know, a normal year... You still are you you overload your own division, sure, but you still have to face some of the other teams. You still get that league wide look. This year, you're not even doing that. You're facing the other divisions, none. So it's it's even tougher to say who's the Cy Young because you're it's you're not comparing apples to apples here. And in the case of the National League Central, well, there seems to be a, a higher end of lower ERAs, and is that because the pitchers are so much better? Or is it because the hitters are so much worse? And if you look statistically at the offenses in the National League, well, the, at the very bottom half are all of the National League Central teams, every single one of them. And, you know, being from Chicago, I, I follow a lot of people that, that tweet about the Cubs and the White Sox. Well, Cubs Twitter is always talking about how their offense is, is not very good. So, And they're the best offense in that division. So if that's <laughs> the case, I, I would think that, there should be some weight put into the fact that DeGrom is facing some elite offenses on a regular basis and Trevor Bauer and Darvish and Burns aren't. Now, I, I've been thinking about this because of the fact that it's just 12 starts and that it's just, it, it's really, you could, one a guy has one bad start in his last start and it takes him out, even though really he was in it for those other 11 starts. So the way that I'm looking at it this year are just watching these guys. Who are the guys where I say, that no, that you could have had a million at-bats against this guy and nobody's getting a hit off of him. And you saw that DeGrom the other day, first inning when he struck out the side on 10 pitches, basically replicating what he did in the All-Star game. And then when I watched Denelson Lamette, even though he's only doing it with two pitches, he's like, I wonder how people are able to get hits against him. So for, for just once, I'm taking the statistical component slightly out of the mix and I'm looking at it from more of a, I guess, a visual, visceral kind of sense. Well, I mean, that makes sense. And, you know, Darvish can be nasty, too, and, and so can Trevor. I mean, these guys are good pitchers. You know, Kershaw's is found some velocity, and he's gotten back to uh, more of where he used to be, uh, which, of course, is a Hall of Fame pitcher. So it is tough, even in that regard, to do that. I, I do think that if it comes down to DeGrom and a few of these other guys, you know, it's, as you said, 12 starts. We know Jacob DeGrom is Cy Young caliber over a full season. And recently, he's done it the last two years back-to-back. That should be a tiebreaker in in my mind this year. I wouldn't say that every year because it should be the whole season and only that season. But in a short year, it's hard to give the benefit of the doubt to Corbin Burns because he hasn't done this over a full season. And Jacob has. So to me, I think that should definitely come into play if, if it's still all bunched up and tied, essentially, at the end. 
Yeah, that's like reputation points, kind of like with the Gold Glove Awards, where we say sometimes that a guy wins it because he had been good in previous seasons. Right. Uh, you got to give him the benefit of the doubt. Like I don't believe in it uh, un- under the circumstances of a full year, but in this sort of year, uh, yep. I think that that could should come into play. The other New York Met baseball story that I think is kind of nationally uh, pertinent is Pete Alonso's season, uh, hitting the 50-plus home runs last season and putting up the numbers that he did. And he's experienced a uh, fall back to earth a bit. What are your impressions of how his year has gone? It's been tough. You know, it's, it, Pete has, uh, you know, he's certainly putting the work in. I think the lack of video has hurt some of these guys. You know, J.D. Davis talked about it the other day. I haven't heard Pete address it much. You know, I know McNeil was bothered by it. Maybe he's he's found some adjustments since then to, to still be able to put up the numbers he has. You know, Pete's a studious guy and, and likes to take notes and watch video, and I'm sure that has not helped. You know, he's also not – we saw him in a home run to, to right center field last night. And it was really one of the first times he's done that this year. And last year he did it a lot. You know, he was always going to right field and hitting the ball out of the ballpark. Obviously, the power is still there. In, in a regular season, he'd be on pace for 35, 40 homers. So you wouldn't look at it quite that way. But the batting average is certainly much lower. He's only got four doubles this year. The on-base percentage is a lot lower. So it's, it's, it's a different sort of year for Pete. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of talk of a bounce back going into next season and when next spring training starts that will be a major storyline going in. But, you know, it, it could also go the other way. You know, you don't want him to turn into Chris Davis where he has the, the huge year and then he has a hard time replicating that. So, you know, I think he'll put the work in. I know he's, he's confident he's going to be able to do that. But, you know, it's Major League Baseball. It's tough. And he's not the first guy to, to slump in his second year after a big rookie year. Yeah, it, it, it's been interesting. I think, too, that the 60-game season – uh, they pulled the the trigger on moving him around in the lineup pretty quick. They did it like the 18-19 game mark, whereas in 162 games, they might have let him try to ride it out a little bit in the two or the four spot or wherever they wanted to, to put him. Let me segue to the National League East, uh, if I can. I said the other day that I thought the NLA should forfeit a playoff spot based on how all these teams are falling all over themselves. What's been your biggest takeaway from watching the NL East this season? Well, you know, if you if you watch just one division, you know, that might be uh, an easy thing to say. But with the Milwaukee Brewers are 500, right. so are the Reds, so are the Giants. Colorado's uh, got a little bit worse record than the Mets do. So, yeah, it looks bad. The Phillies are, are, are collapsing. There's no other way to put it. Uh, the Marlins, you know, maybe are coming back to earth a little bit after a, a great season that they've had. And they've got a tough week. They've got Atlanta and then the Yankees to finish the year. Quite frankly, for the Mets – I think their best path to the playoffs is second place in their division. You know, the wild card's going to be tough. The Brewers and the Reds are, are battling, and the Giants are there too, and, and maybe the Phillies and Marlins as well. So uh, you have all these teams to jump over, but in your own division, you know, you're only a game and a half behind the Phillies. You're three behind Miami, but you have, you have to just tie Miami because the Mets have the tiebreaker over the Marlins. And they've got the Yankees this weekend after their series with Atlanta wraps up. So if the Mets take care of business and win four or five of their remaining games, who's to say the Marlins won't go two and three and you tie them and you end up in second all of a sudden? That is possible. It is there for the Mets. And I think that's an easier path than trying to leap over all these four or five teams for the wild card. It would be a reverse of the uh, 07 and 08 scenarios in which the Mets did not fare for (laughs) particularly well. Um, quickly, uh, on the AL East, uh, likely to have three in the playoffs, uh, ba- basically all but clinched. 
What impressed you the most uh, about the American League teams that you've seen this season? Well, I mean, you know, the Yankees, when we saw them, they were still trying to fight back from injuries. And it was pretty clear that the way that Boyd and some of these guys were hitting, even Clint Frazier, that they would be fine if they got the others back. You know, LeMahieu had been back at that point. And now since they've gotten healthy, they've played a lot better. I mean, that's that's not a surprise. I think their pitching is okay. I was surprised to see their bullpen struggle as much as it did against against the Mets. I think they'll they'll still be good in October. You know, Tampa Bay is such an interesting team because they are really fundamentally – it's almost like watching the, the Japanese national team where they will not blow you away with any talent. They're not going to show off with their home runs or strikeouts or they're not going to just come in and, and beat you up. But they're going to play the best baseball on that particular day and they will likely win their game because of it. That's who the Tampa Bay Rays remind me of. They just come in, they play hard, they do everything right, they don't beat themselves, and then they win the game at the end of the day. And that's really what it's about for them. I heard Kevin Cash talking about how they treat every game like it's a playoff game. You know, they kind of have that that mentality every day, win today, and they've been able to do that more than anybody in the American League this year. Um, you know, the Blue Jays are young and and they've got you know some talent there. Their pitching is a little bit light, but you know, I'm sure that it's exciting for them to even have a chance to go to the playoffs right now. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't think they'll get by the first round, but I, I think the Rays and the Yankees are, are legit contenders for, for winning the American League pennant. You know, those central teams are pretty good, too. I know the Twins have had a hard time getting through the Yankees in, in postseason play, and they might match up again. And I don't know if that's some kind of mental block for Minnesota. That's a good team. The White Sox are good. Uh, Oakland looks good. So, you know, the playoffs will be exciting once we get there. I want to talk uh, briefly in the second component of this. uh, I wanted to talk about your use of stats and analytics in game broadcasts, uh, which has certainly been something that I've enjoyed in listening to the Mets this season. I've heard you use defensive run save, launch angle, exit velocity, war on occasion, some of the softer things, just OPS. Uh, I would say that you're very much up to speed on everything, and you've even gotten your somewhat curmudgeonly broadcast partner, Howie, he mentioned defensive run saved in broadcast that I was listening to on Tuesday night. So I'm curious, how do you go about preparing for things uh, with regards to studying the analytics uh, and just uh, how that is integrated for you into your broadcast? Yeah, you know, I, I like to poke around. I, I've got the, the Sports Info Solutions DRS newsletter that comes in. That That's helpful and it's easy to, to read and, you know, the charts are able to pick through them pretty easily. For me, I don't like bogging people down with numbers. So when I do slip them in, I try to give them context. So some of the ones that you're you're saying, I think, are the easiest ones for a listener on the radio to absorb. You know, on TV, I would go a lot deeper. You know, I would I would start busting out runs created and weighted runs created plus and <laughs> whoa, but I really would. You know, ISO power. I would do all those things on TV because graphically we can show them. And graphically, we can talk about what they mean. Now, Mets TV, you know, they've got a couple of real old school guys sitting there, plus Gary. They don't venture off into that land very often. So when I fill in for Gary, I'm not really able to do that. But if I was in my own world on a TV broadcast, I was I was the play-by-play guy on TV, I, you would see a lot more of that. But on radio, you know, I feel like we have a, an older demographic and also – even if we didn't, just the just having to have to explain every single time what some of these things mean would be tough. 
and we're trying to call the game and describe the pitches, describe everything. So when I do use it, it's I, I tend to use some of the things that are very easily explained, like uh, like an exit velocity. Or if I do venture in to some of the deeper things, I will always try to find a league average or always try to say this is like OPS plus. You know, I'll say this guy's got a 160 OPS plus and the baseline is 100 when they run the numbers. Average is 100, so he's 60% better than everybody else at, at that category. And I think that's just an easy way to tell the listener that this guy is really good at this. So, you know, that's kind of where we, where we land on some of this stuff. I think about some of the stat cast numbers and, and sprint speed. And, you know, I'll talk about infield shifts. You know, I like to see who's been shifted the most. You know, yeah. I think for the Mets, Frazier's been shifted over 50% as a right-handed batter. So I'll drop that in every now and then, too. Um, you know, I'll, I'll talk about the sprint speeds. I saw an interesting chart yesterday about how uh, Mets players, you know, accelerate and how Ahmed Rosario's acceleration is really poor. But when he gets near the end of his journey, you know, he's got elite speed. So it's uh, it's an interesting way to put it that this guy's fast, but it takes him a while to get moving. And, and here's the numbers to back it up. I'm not just saying that. And that's why he has no stolen bases this year, even though he's as fast as he is. So it's it's an easy way to use a, a metric or to use any, any type of statistic and make it digestible for the, for the listeners. And I made fun of uh, Howie Rose just slightly there, but Howie's excellent. Uh, Howie is an encyclopedia of Mets history, but I feel like he's, he's kind of, he, I don't want to say he's gotten pounded down by it, but he's gotten to the point of acceptance with it. And one of the challenges that we have is, is trying to get people that are older, that are older school, to, to grasp some of the stuff. Is it just repetition that gets someone like that? Or is, is there some, uh, some sort of trick to it? Well, yeah, I think that, that it does take some acceptance at a, at a baseline level to believe in, in what you're seeing and, and also to think that it has some weight on what's being done on the field. You know, it would be nice if we had more access to what the teams are, are looking at, because, you know, I, we don't really know what they're looking at. We don't really know what is in their algorithms, what's in their systems and all that. You know, sometimes, you know, we've been shown stuff in, in private meetings that are kind of head scratching that, that make you wonder, you know, are these things even working? Because, you know, they, we were shown matchups once and who the best matchup was. And it was, it was probably one of the worst players the Mets had on the team at the time against one of the other team's best pitchers. And it was like, that's the best matchup according to your, your algorithm. And so it's, it's hard to buy in when you see some of that stuff and you don't really know what the teams are using. And I get it. You know, there's still, you still have, we still have eyes. So, you know, and I think when we're watching the games and seeing the people live and seeing the teams live, you know, we generally know what we're watching. And I think that's where Keith or Ron, especially guys who really know what they're watching at a level that we don't understand, you know, they see some of this stuff and they go, we don't need that. We see what was what we need to see and we understand why it's happening the way it is. So I think there's some of that too. And I think that's, that's valid. I, I think that because those guys, you know, unless you're sitting there and even if you watch the games, unless you're sitting there, and, and watching them work and seeing what they're seeing and what they're pointing out to each other, what they're pointing out to the producer, you, it's, it's a level beyond even what they say into the microphones. And it's just something that would only come from the years and years spent playing the game that they did. 
All right, uh, Wayne Rendazzo, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. You can catch Wayne and Howie Rose on uh, CBS 880 in New York. Thanks for uh, joining us. Thanks a lot. I'd also like to encourage you to check out the Sports Info Solutions blog, sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. We've gone defense heavy the last few weeks, looking at Pirates rookie Cabrian Hayes, White Sox first baseman Jose Abreu, and Braves pitcher Max Fried. We've also got a scouting report up on KBO star Haseyang Kim from Ted Barda. And if football's your game, check out the Off the Charts football podcast with Matt Manicharian and Aaron Schatz. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us. For Wayne Rendazzo and Joe Sheehan and our producer Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Stay safe and stay well. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.